Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you guys. If you may please turn your Bibles with me to the small letter to Jude. We'll be continuing, and this will be the second to last sermon that I'll be doing in this book. Next time will be the doxology. But for now, we'll be looking at Jude, verses 17 to 23. Jude 17 to 23. And for any note-takers out there, the title of the sermon this evening is going to be A Call to Persevere. A Call to Persevere. And so once you find your places in your Bibles, you please may stand with me for the public reading of the Scripture. Looks like everyone is there. We shall begin. This is what our Lord tells us through the mouth of Jude by the Spirit, starting in verse 17 all the way to verse 23. This is what our text tells us this evening, church. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." This is what our Lord tells us this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for just a blessed opportunity just to gather in your name, Lord, just to gather as a household of saints, Lord, bought by the blood of your son, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life all to your glory. We just pray that, Lord, just you are magnified and glorified through our singings of worship, Father, despite how busy our weeks have been, um, the various trials that we have gone through, Lord. Father, we thank you nonetheless that we are here, and I just pray that it is your word that will just go forth to your people, that it will just nourish them, Lord, it will feed them, Lord, and God sustain them, Lord, to be able to live a life worthy of the gospel, to help them to better know you, to better love you, Lord, and God just to better um, live a life all to your glory. And I just pray that, although myself being a broken vessel, that God, I'll just be able to clearly and accurately, Lord, and simply communicate your word, to your people, that the point of this sermon will indeed be the point of the text, so that, God, we not only understand what this word means to us, Lord, but that, God, we may live in light of it, Lord, all to your glory alone. So, God, go before us this evening. We lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, church. Countless Christians throughout history have demonstrated incredible faithfulness as followers of Jesus of Messiah, Right? And there's one man I want to note regarding just his persistence in defending what he did regarding the full divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, right? And although his beliefs led him to stand against what seemed like the whole world, he persevered in what he knew to be true in God's word. And if you don't know who I'm referring to, I'm referring to an individual named Athanasius. Who is Athanasius? He was, an, he was a bishop in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, lived in the 4th century. Although he did not die for the sake of Jesus, he was ready to lay down his life. Why? Well, there was something that came up throughout history, and this was something of great controversy, and it had to do with, with an ancient heresy, bless you, regarding, bless you, Arianism. What is Arianism? Well, named after the Alexandrian presbyter Arius, he taught that Jesus was like God. But, there's a catch, he said he was a created being. You see the problem with that, right? In other words, he said that there was a time when God the Son, which would be Jesus, was not 
because he was created by God the Father. Again, horrible, right? As a result, the church at this time had to call a meeting, right, at a city in Greece called, or sorry, in Turkey called Nicaea in 325 AD to discuss Arius' heretical teachings. And in conclusion, long story short, they condemned him as a heretic and claimed, that, and claimed the biblical belief that Jesus is of the same essence of God the Father. In other words, Jesus is fully God as the Son of God. But yet, the story doesn't end there, unfortunately, because controversy continued after Nicaea. Because you see, a lot of Roman emperors during this time, the leaders of this empire, gradually accepted a lot of Arius' heretical beliefs, and although Athanasius still stood firm that, no, Jesus is fully God, that's what the Bible teaches, yet this led him to be exiled five different times over the time span of 17 different years, and he lived that life until the church realized, man, Athanasius was right because the Bible says this. So with that in mind, his work and his life was always on the line. Yet he was willing and ready to lay down everything to not only contend for the full divinity of Jesus, but really the gospel itself. As Athanasius once said himself, that Jesus became man so that man may, be, may be become God, be restored back to him. Because if Jesus was not fully God, church, he could not cleanse his people from our sins. A mere man cannot bear the full wrath of God on behalf of sinners. So Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man, right? To save his people from their sins. And not only that, but to restore us as born-again creatures back to the God who made us. Therefore, we see Athanasius, he was willing to stand against the whole world. For he knew that fighting for the gospel meant standing beside our triune creator himself. Likewise, the church, where we find ourselves in, right, church? The church in the United States doesn't necessarily have to deal with, you know, great Trinitarian controversies in the past necessarily. Granted, we still need to be on guard for those Aryans that still exist today, right? Just with a different label. If you don't know who I'm referring to, I'll give you a hint. JW, those are my initials. I'll leave it at that. Nonetheless, we as believers, we have to deal with more pressing matters, right? Such as sanctity of human life, maybe the institution of marriage, the reality that God has made people in his image biologically, as male and female. And I can tell you that the time is coming that we are going to have to stand against the world, like Athanasius, for the sake of the gospel. Our current political or cultural climate makes that unfortunately clear every passing day. But yet, as the apostles once said long ago, we must always obey God rather than man. As a result, as we approach the letter to Jude once again, we recall that Jude, he was writing to a predominantly Jewish church in Israel during the mid-first century A.D. And although he wanted to write to them to encourage them about our salvation and Jesus the Messiah, the rise of false teachers forced him to change his plans. Consider what Jude says about this situation in verses 3 to 4 of his letter. He says there, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here that Jude found it necessary to urge these churches to fight for the gospel. Why? Because 
certain false teachers slipped into their churches and were perverting the grace of the grace of God for their sinful desires, all done in a manner that ultimately denies Jesus as their master and Lord. Because these false teachers thought that they could sin all that they want without the thought that God would actually judge them. Not only were they taking God's grace then for granted alongside his mercy, his peace, and his love, but they were really expressing their rejection of his authority as master too. Therefore, Jude's main point in verses 17 to 23, which is going to be the main point of my sermon this evening, loved ones, is that you must keep fighting for the gospel. You must keep fighting for the gospel. But how are we supposed to fight for the gospel? Well, we're going to see that Jude's going to show this through three exhortations, three commands. First, remember what God has said in the past. Remember. Second, remain in the triune God's love. Remain. And third, rescue those who are perishing. Rescue. So with, so with all this in mind, loved ones, let's look at the first exhortation of the text this evening, which is this again. Remember what God has said in the past. Remember what God has said in the past. And so look at verse 17 in your Bibles, loved ones. This is what Jude writes, beginning with our text this evening. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've been following with me in Jude or are familiar with the letter, we are arriving at a major transition in the letter, and we can know that due to the phrase, but you must remember, beloved. Because where Jude has been talking about false teachers, starting from verse 5 all the way to verse 16, he's now doing a contrast, right? He's comparing them, these false teachers, now with his beloved brothers and sisters, his fellow friends in Jesus. Furthermore, this is also going to be the final section regarding the false teachers in his letter before the letter climaxes in verses 20 to 23. And we ultimately see this through that word, remember. Remember. Because if you look toward the beginning of Jude's description of these false teachers, it actually begins at verse 5. He begins by calling his beloved to what? To remember. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so where Jude then first reminds his readers about false teachers in verse 5, he does so one more time in verse 17. And I mention that because these two verses act as bookends for Jude's entire section on these false teachers. And in case if you don't recall what Jude wrote about these teachers, let me remind you what he did say about them throughout this letter. We saw back in verses 5 to 8, right, how he compares the false teachers' apostasy, the rebellion against God, with examples from the Old Testament. We saw in verses 9 to 10 how they reject God's authority like Satan and they fail to submit to him as Lord. We saw in verses 11 to 13 how they even teach evil and disguise themselves as God's people, wolves in sheep's clothing. And we saw last time in verses 14 to 16 how this all leads to their final judgment for their sin eternally before God. And so then Jude here reminds his readers about the past regarding the false teachers, not only their sinful behavior, but also how God judges them too. But yet, Jude reminds them of another thing, right? And it's what 
the, the apostles said about this. What did the apostles have to say to the beloved believers here? So look at verse 17 again. He says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where Jude refers, you know, previously to a prophecy in the past about the false teachers, their final judgment in verses 14 to 16. We're going to see here he's referring to one more present, right? What did the apostles have to say? And when we talk about the apostles, Jude could have had in mind maybe the 12 apostles or maybe like the apostle Paul or even James, his brother, the half-brother of Jesus. Yet one thing we do need to keep in mind is that the apostle and the word apostle in the Greek generally could, could just mean a word for messenger. Although it was an office in the ancient church, generally it just meant a messenger, right? And I only mention that because it's very difficult to know who did Jude have in mind here, right? The text doesn't say. But what is necessary, though, and what is, what is important to realize is that as an, as an apostle generally, as a messenger, they never spoke on their own authority alone. Because instead, they spoke on behalf of the one who sent them, right? And since Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who commissions both the apostles and every believer afterward to make disciples of all of the nations, their prophecy then is what really Jesus says himself. But this then begs the question, what does Jesus predict through the apostles by the Spirit? We find our answer in the very next verse. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, in verse 18. Jude writes, they said to you, this is the apostles, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So the apostles' prophecy then says that these scoffers following their own ungodly passions, they will rise in the last time. But what does Jude mean when he says in the last time? Well, throughout the New Testament, we see this language. It's the last time that describes an era, not necessarily in the future, but more of a present reality, something that we're actually living, loved ones. And not only is this era inaugurated when Christ first came 2,000 years ago in his first coming, but it will actually come to an end, right? It will be consummated in his second coming when he returns, make all things new. Consider what the Apostle Peter says regarding this first coming in 1 Peter 1.20. He says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, for the sake of believers. That's about the first coming. And earlier, he has something to say about the second coming of Christ, right? And this is Peter emphasizing the believer's final salvation in the future, right? He says in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, and this is a big chunk, but it's good to read this entire section to understand his point. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready in the last time. So this time period between the two comings of Jesus is the last time that Judah is referring to. And some theologians will call it the age between or the now and the not yet. Regardless, we are currently living in this age between the two comings of Jesus. Although he came 2,000 years ago to redeem his people back to himself again through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we as believers, we anticipate with hope the restoration of this fallen universe in his second coming, right? We'll return to this idea when we get to verse 21 later tonight. In the meantime, 
The apostles also mentioned in verse 18 that a sign of the last time, one sign that we will know we're in the last time, is the rise of scoffers. And before I get to what the idea of scoffing is, the Apostle Paul actually has something to say about the rise of false teachers or people who are, who, who, are call, who are prophesied to come in the last time. This is what he says to Timothy, starting in 1 Timothy 4.1. Paul writes, The Spirit expressly says, In the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Furthermore, Paul also writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. He says again, In the last days there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul says. So this is the time that Paul was referring to as well as Peter was referring to, right? But yet in light of this, what is Jude getting at though that these scoffers are going to come during this last time between the two comings of Christ, the time that we're living in right now, church? Well, generally, a scoffer is really a mocker of the creator God himself. Instead of submitting to him as Lord and Savior, scoffers follow their own sinful desires. And not only does this include their sinful speech, but overall their lifestyle, which is sinful. In other words, scoffers are not godly people. Consider what the book of Psalms opens up with in Psalm 1, 1 1-2. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we see here, right, a person is blessed when they find joy in God's word. They read and meditate upon it daily and prosper spiritually by growing in their love and knowledge of God. But in contrast, the scoffer is a wicked sinner following their own ungodly desires. And as the psalm later says, it leads to their ultimate death. Therefore, these false teachers in Jude's letter are these scoffers. As Jude says even earlier in verse 16, he says these are grumblers. They're malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. These false teachers, instead of enjoying God forever as the creator, they exchanged his truth for the lie of enjoying their own sinful desires. And since these false teachers follow their own ungodly passions, Jude gives just three final descriptions of their true spiritual state in the next verse. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones, in verse 19. Jude writes, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And as Jude has been doing throughout his letter, he refers to these teachers as these people, right? Does he even even want to call them by name because he doesn't think it's worthwhile of his time? Instead, he just mentions three more things that they do according to their ungodly desires. And again, it's they cause divisions. They are worldly and and they do not have the Holy Spirit. So look at that first one. They were causing divisions. Although the text doesn't tell us how they were doing so, 
we do understand that it was some sort of division causing within the churches of Israel themselves. But yet, there is one thing that we can pick up on the text, though. And although we don't know what they were doing exactly, the context tells us that they were forming more of the sense of factions. In other words, there was a bunch of cliques going on within these churches. And we, and we see this hint based on what verse 12 has to say. And if you look back at verse 12, it is, these, it is that these false teachers were, were, were partaken in the churches of Israel's love feasts, right? And what is a love feast? Well, if you recall, a love feast, it was just that common meal that early Christians ate in connection with their worship to Jesus for the purpose of fostering and just expressing their affection, their love, their concern for one another as fellow brothers and sisters. But yet, it wasn't just a fellowship meal after service, after their church service, but it was also accompanied with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And the ultimate focus of this meal was not only the remembrance that Christ, of Christ's death and our victory in him over sin and death, right? But ultimately, our unity that Jesus has caused within all of us as his, um, as his followers. And so we look at that, right? It's like, oh, what's the big deal? Well, the love feast... It was only meant for born-again believers of Jesus. And the fact that these false teachers were partaking in it, as Jude calls them, hidden wreaths, reveals their secretive and divisive nature. Not only were they rebelling against God because they were taking it in an unworthy manner through their sexual and sinful lifestyle, they were really causing confusion, as we'll see later, with their sinful speech and their lifestyle among God's people too. And it's because of that that these false teachers is doing it naturally, not showing any remorse, causing division within the churches. It just shows that these people are worldly people. They are devoid of the Spirit. In other words, Jude is saying that these false teachers are nothing more than unbelievers. These people are not Christians. They're still unregenerate. They are still dead in their sins. And they are not living according to the wisdom from above but that which comes from the sinful world as sinners themselves. As James writes in James 3.15, this is not wisdom that comes from above, right, from our Father in heaven. Instead, it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The false teacher's sinful speech and even their behavior reveals that they do not possess the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Instead, they possess the fruit of the flesh. And as a result, they do not have the Spirit because they do not have the good fruit that stems from someone who has been born again by the Spirit. As Jesus said about false teachers, right, in Matthew 5, 16, you will truly recognize them by their fruits. Therefore, in light of that, right, beloved, you must remember, as well as Jude's audience, what God has said in his word, especially about false teachers, because if we're going to persevere in fighting for the gospel, if you're going to persevere in contending for the faith, you must remember what he has said in the Bible. Because otherwise, how will you be ready and equipped to live in a way that pleases God? How will you be ready to fight for the gospel, especially against those who wage war against it? Like that blessed man in Psalm 1, who finds delight by meditating upon God's word daily, you must do the same too, loved ones. For not only will you grow in your knowledge and your affection for the triune God who made you, but it will lead you to experience joyful contentment that only he can provide. Only when you live a life saturated in the word, both as a hearer and as a doer, will you be equipped for every good work as a follower of Jesus the Messiah. 
As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16-17, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's word to his people, right? To, to us. And not only are they sufficient in teaching what we need to believe, but it also teaches us how we ought to live. And this is all the more true, all the more real during those difficult life circumstances. For Judah and his audience, it was dealing with these false teachers. And whether we have to deal with false teachers in the future, we have dealt with some in the past, it's the word that instructs us how we ought to think biblically and also act biblically during these moments of pressure, right? But yet, not only, not only when it regards to false teachers, but even just in general regarding life circumstances, Maybe it's a physical ailment that you're plagued with. Anxiety from school or work. Discontentment. Maybe it's experiencing marital issues with your spouse or a family turmoil or whatever that this world may throw at you. It's only the Bible. The Bible is sufficient in teaching us how we ought to approach each and every situation in a way that glorifies God. Instead of doing things like we feel like, right, according to our emotions, we've got to begin what God tells us in his word, right? Instead of being quick to believe in anything else but what the Bible says, we got to go to God's word first regarding everything, right? Therefore, beloved, as Jude calls us to remember what God has said in the past, we got to do so as well. And we do so by living in the Bible. Live in the Bible. Take it up and read it daily. Allow it to simmer in your inner person, filtering out that sin and replacing it with Jesus. It may be difficult initially, right? Maybe some seasons are more harder than another, but we got to do so, not because we have to, but because our soul depends upon it, right? It's good for us. As Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And over time, you will find yourself not only being more confident in what God has said in his word, his promises, leading you to, leading you to correct feelings and actions, but ultimately, it will lead you to ultimately rest in his truths as well. And this begins when we just stop and remember what God has said in the past in his word. However, and I do have to mention this, whether people are here or just for us to be equipped in this, loved ones, we realize that we live in a culture that doesn't really view the Bible as reliable anymore, right? Due to supposedly modern science, history, regressive teaching, socially like human sexuality, because many people in our culture live, as they would call it, expressive individuals, living according to their subjective feelings. And what I mean by that is, if it's true for me, if it works for me, then it's true, right? And they go with that and they end up denying what the Bible says as objectively true. But yet we as Christians, right, we confidently believe that the Bible is God's word. But why? Why, right? And, and I'm taking this from a fellow pastor from a different church and I think thinks he put this succinctly, but this is what he says. This is why we can be confident that the Bible is God's word and that it's a reliable collection, right, of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine in origin. And if that wasn't good enough, we have thousands of the manuscripts that are preserved today preserving the message of the Bible, no other book in human history can make that claim, loved ones. Just because people may discredit the Bible doesn't mean that they're actually true in doing so. And if there is anyone here, I just challenge you, if you have never studied the Bible, read it for yourself, right? 
Every believer understands this, but read it for yourself, and you realize that it's unlike any other book because it's ultimately God as the author. And that is worth remembering, right? Especially because it contains the greatest story of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we will see more in the next couple of verses. But in the meantime, it is this section that Jude finishes, finishes off talking about these false teachers. But how is he going to exhort the churches of Israel to really address, to really approach this difficult circumstance, right? Because he hasn't done that yet in his letter. Well, we're going to see that in his second exhortation tonight. And that it's this, that we remain in the triune God's love. That we remain in the triune God's love. So look at verses 20 to 21 in your Bibles, loved ones. This is what Jude writes. He says, But you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we now move into the climax of the letter. And we know this for two reasons. One, verses 20 to 23, it's another new section in Jude's letter. And we know that because it says, but you beloved. So that in verse 17, he does the exact same thing now in verse 20. But yet there's another prominent reason. And it's the fact that verses 20 to 23 are the direct application of what he said back in verse 3, which was the verse theme of the entire letter. And this is what he says there again, loved ones. He says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is significant because where verses 5 to 19 expand on what he said about the false teachers in verse 4, it is in verses 20 to 23 that expand what he says in verse 3. And what do I mean by that? Well, how are Christians to contend for the faith, to fight for the gospel? How were Jude's audience called to do that? How are we called to do that today, loved ones? Well, look at what Jude says in verse 21. And I'm going to skip a verse particularly because verse 21 shows us the main verb that brings this entire passage together. And so look at the beginning of verse 21. This is what he says. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So the one way Jude says to fight for the gospel, to contend for it, is by remaining in God's love. Not only is this a command in the Greek, but when he talks about God's love, it's not It's not those, I guess, emotional feelings that we might feel today, right? No, it's more than that. Instead, he refers to God's selfless and caring actions, right? Particularly for his people, which he ultimately expressed right in the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. But you may be asking yourself, well, how are we supposed to remain in God's love? What does Jude tell us? Well, look again more broadly at verses 20 to 21 in your Bibles, loved ones. Jude writes, but you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so we see in this passage then that Jude is using three supporting words to support the main idea, keep yourself in God's word. What are these three instructions, these three supports? Well, it's one, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Two, pray in the Holy Spirit. And three, Wait for the return of Jesus, the Messiah. So look at that first one. Jude says to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. 
And this idea for building, at least in the Greek, it captures the idea of really building upon something or building further upon a previous foundation or structure. And this is something that Paul likes to use a lot in his letters about the church. One primary example is in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I'll read it for you guys. This is what Paul has to say. And keep in mind the building aspect of this passage. He says, So when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It is in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see in this passage, right, God shows his people just mercy and grace, mercy being he withholds what we do deserve, that being judgment, and grace, he gives us what we don't, what we don't deserve, salvation, right? It's because of these things we are no longer strangers. We are no longer alienated between God, our Father, our holy triune God of the universe. Why? Because Jesus brought us into fellowship with him due to our repentance and faith in him. And since Jesus atoned for our sins by dying in our place, we are forgiven and have new life in him. And as a result, we are fellow citizens made holy to be in God's household. Therefore, it's this gospel reality then built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Or in other words, the gospel being being built upon the Old Testament, which the prophets spoke, and the New Testament, which the apostles spoke, that cornerstone of that building is Jesus himself. In other words, the Old and New Testament, the entire Bible, that cornerstone of the Bible, the main point of all scripture is Jesus himself. Because all scripture points to him as the Lord of glory. Where the Old Testament points to the promise of the coming Messiah, the New Testament is what points to the fulfillment of the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And the Bible not only joins God's people together, right, in unity, but it grows them together in Christ-like holiness by the Holy Spirit. So part of what Jude is getting at with his audience here by build, is that they build themselves up as the community of believers called out by God from the world, the church, right? And that's important because the false teachers in the verse prior, they were causing division within the churches of Israel. As a result, the churches of Israel, they need to pursue unity. And the only thing then that can ultimately bring unity among God's people is the gospel itself. But furthermore, there's another aspect to this, though. Not only the community aspect, but consider what he says at the end of verse 20, where he says, your most holy faith. And the most holy faith, or the most holiest faith, right, it's, it's the same faith that Jude mentions earlier in his letter, going back to verse 3, where he says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the faith the key fundamentals of the gospel, right? The key truths that make Christianity what it is, right? The gospel. And the one way, right, Christians in all times and places build upon their foundation of the gospel is to grow in their knowledge and love for God through the Bible, through the word. It is the gospel that is our most holy faith. Why? Because it is the only faith that tells us of the greatest news imaginable, Broken sinners, you and me, being filled with guilt and shame, being forgiven by the trying God who made us and made us to experience our restored relationship with him. But how do we build ourselves up, right, in the gospel? 
Well, simple. Read your Bibles daily, loved ones. Hear faithful sermons. Discuss the word with your fellow brothers and sisters. Strive to be doer of the word with your entire lives because not only will you grow in your knowledge of God, but again, it will cause you to actually grow in your love for him. As Paul says, again, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, to put off your old self, right, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off your old self, your old sinful self, and you put on Christ's likeness, right? But we do that through renewing our mind, and we renew our minds through the word of God by the Holy Spirit power. So building yourselves up in your most holy faith, it's not only really a corporate reality, but also an individual responsibility. Because to just focus on the former, right, would be to really lack your personal walk with Jesus. But yet there's a catch. If you focus on the other side of that, right, then you live a life of unfaithful service, of not loving God's people by being a part of that, right? And so what Jude is getting at here then is that building yourselves up in your most holy faith, it's a communal and individual responsibility. These are both true in the Christian life. Not only is the gospel your faith, my faith, it is also our faith as followers of the Messiah. And as you fight for the gospel and strive to remain in God's love by living a life to his glory, it begins when we immerse yourself in God's word. And that, loved ones, is both done again at the individual, but also at the corporate levels. Therefore, again, live in the Bible. Read it daily, for our souls depend upon it. Some people may try to make excuses like, oh, John, I don't have time, you know, just sometimes life gets super busy, and that happens, right? But let me ask you this question. How many of you make time for your jobs and your family, right? Again, I agree, those are necessities, those are important, but how much more necessary is reading the Bible, obeying God's word? Even just being, spending 15 minutes a day, right, just, that'll get you the three chapters a day. And if you were to read three chapters a day for a year, that gets you through the entire Bible. Just 15 minutes, right? But it gets you through the entire Bible if you did that every single day. And just add on to that, right? Just coming to church, hearing faithful sermons, just discussing the word with your fellow brothers and sisters as you just live life, right? This is the way that God ordained how we grow as Christians, how we grow to be more like Jesus, you, set, you, set, you really then set yourself up for failure if you neglect your personal intake of the Bible or the community at the local church level as well. Again, both are necessary, loved ones, to not only build yourselves up in your most holy faith, but to remain faithful in fighting for the gospel. But yet, scripture, in, scripture intake at least, it must be accompanied by our outtake of prayer. And this is the second way we remain in God's love. By praying in the Spirit. That's what Jude says. By praying in the Spirit. And what Jude is really just saying here is that when we pray, it has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because although prayer is just simply talking to God, communicating to God, it is really impossible um, to do this on our own strength. As Paul makes this clear in Romans 8, 26 to 27, he says this. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
So it is the Holy Spirit who intercedes on our behalf, like Jesus as well, while on earth to the Father. Where your prayers, our prayers are at best broken, it is the Spirit who prays on our behalf according to God's perfect will. And so when you pray, we will do well to pray in the Holy Spirit. And since it is by God's grace that the Spirit aids us in our prayers, we will also do well to guard how we pray. And I think John Calvin, he was a French reformer, he offers a couple few helpful guidelines on how we ought to pray rightly. He says five things. He says, first, we've got to pray with reverence. Know that God is the creator, that he is in charge. Know who we approach in prayer. Second, we've got to pray with insufficiency. We are dependent creatures. We depend upon our Father in heaven. Third, we've got to pray with humility. We are God's creatures. We are here to serve him. Fourth, pray with confidence, right? God is in control. He will answer everything according to his perfect will. And lastly, pray in Jesus' name because he is the one that we have access to the Father to, right? Through his sacrifice on our behalf. Five simple rules, right? But yet crucial to make sure we pray in the Holy Spirit. And also, too, if you're unfamiliar with how to pray the Bible, then I recommend that you learn to grow in that practice, too. Because not only does it help transform your prayer life by praying God's words back to him, but you also find yourself praying more in light of God's will. Again, in taking the word inspired by the Spirit and breathing it out with the Spirit's help as well. But yet, your intake of Scripture and outtake of it in prayer must all be done in light of the hope that we have, right? That eschatological, end-time hope, the return of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. This leads us to the third way that we remain in God's love. And so, look in your Bibles, beloved, at verse 21. This is what Jude writes. He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so we read a verse like that, and we know that one day, history itself, history will one day come to an end, because the goal would have been reached. Although we currently live in this world filled with great evil due to sin, there will be a day when Jesus will return to make all things new. He, he will return to be reunited with his bride, the church, and recreate this fallen world in eternal glory. Consider what the Apostle John says about this heavenly reality in Revelation 21, 1-5. It's this idea of what's going to happen when Christ returns to recreate all things John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This will happen, loved ones. But we wait for that precious day to come quickly, right? This is what Jude has in mind for his readers. Wait for the return of Jesus. Wait with the anticipated hope that that day is coming. Despite this evil present age that we currently live in, despite all the sins of humanity, false teachers that may come about right, brokenness and death on a day-to-day basis, Jude says to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Because when Jesus returns, loved ones, 
we will be reunited with the God who not only made us, but also redeemed us back to himself. However, there is another aspect to this verse, right? Because we're, we as believers who believe in Jesus the Messiah, right, will rejoice at his return, and that will be a great day of rejoicing. How about unbelievers? They're not going to be finding rejoicing in that day when Christ comes. Why? Because they're not going to find any comfort on that day because that's going to be the day that for those who have denied Christ, right, that they're going to realize that they are in the presence of the Creator God. They will realize that we have sinned against Him and that's going to lead us to being eternally judged and held for our sins forever. Although Christians will find mercy in Jesus on that day because of our faith in Him through the Gospel, unbelievers will find nothing but God's wrath. And our culture is to bring back up where we currently live in, it finds this truth disturbing. It hates it. It detests it. For God to be angry with sinners and demand justice, that seems like something from primitive religions from long ago. What does that have to deal with us today? However, what people, our friends, our neighbors, what people today fail to understand is that when we think about this big picture, we all have a sense of right and wrong. And where am I going with this? Well, think about it. When someone wrongs us, we want justice like right away, right? Because we just don't shrug it off, especially it happens to us, right? Something bad happens to us. Like, we want justice for that. We want that wrong to be made right. Yet, in light of all that, when people complain about that, when, when they talk and discuss about these things, what's the foundation for that? How do we know what's ultimately right, what's ultimately wrong? Because as the Bible says, without the God of the Bible then there's no basis for what is right and what is wrong because it's the God of the Bible who is goodness because he is goodness. All that is good is what correlates to his perfect nature. And all that is wrong and sinful and bad is what rebels against his evil, against against his perfect nature. And although people want to say, well, how about human justice systems? That would never, never suffice. People make mistakes, right? Well, how if I take vengeance in my own hands? That's only going to make your heart harden. There's nothing on this earth that can suffice the justice that we all seek and yearn for. But yet, there is one way, a far more better way. We praise Jesus for this because it's what he has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ that is this better way. Because since we have all sinned, right, before an eternal God, the eternal wage for our cosmic treason against him is eternal death in the lake of fire. And God is absolutely justified in doing this because we are, we are the guilty party that has brought shame upon ourselves through our sinful rebellion against God. And to make matters worse, we can't even do anything to save ourselves. We're spiritually dead. We can't do anything about our sinful condition because we love our sin more than we love God. However, as John 3.16 says, classic verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, the Son of God, added humanity to himself 2,000 years ago. As the God-man, fully God, fully man, Jesus lived the sinless life and died on the cross so that if you repent of your sins and believe upon him as Lord and Savior, by faith alone, you're saved. You will be saved. Instead of God demanding for your blood according to your sin debt, Jesus pays your penalty with his own blood on the cross. Where Jesus bears your sins on himself and covers your depth in full, instead you receive his perfect righteousness that he earned while on this earth. And as a result, for those who believe, you will not perish in the lake of fire forever due to your sin, because instead you, have been, you, you would have been gifted the gift of eternal life. 
And all this is only possible by God's grace through Jesus by our faith in him alone. And we know all this is true because Jesus rose again from the grave three days later. And so just to throw this out there, if, if there's anyone here who has not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus, in, in Jesus alone, then I exhort you right now, heed what Romans 10, 9, 10, 13 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The greatest need for humanity is to be born again. And it is only when we believe, when you believe and live for the God of the Bible, that you not only receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of being restored back to him. That's the good news. That's the good news of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And the only reason why we can keep ourselves in God's love, loved ones, because he first loved us through the gospel. Jude mentions this at the beginning of his letter, as a matter of fact, in verse 1. He writes, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So not only are Jude's readers loved and kept by God, but this is true for all who have called upon his name in faith alone. Furthermore, salvation is only a work of God alone, right? But our sanctification, that is just growing to be more like Jesus, it's a work of both God and man. And why do I bring that up? Because he says we've got to keep ourselves in the love of God. Paul kind of helps out what does this mean by writing in Philippians 2, 12 to 13 by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because when we are responsible to grow in our love for God, it's still ultimately God who works in us to keep us in that love. As Paul says earlier in the same book, in Philippians 1.6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And if that's still kind of confusing, here's an illustration of just this idea that, you know, it's both God and man that we work together in our, in our sanctification. Salvation is only God, but to be more like Jesus, God needs to help us, and we need to be responsible in growing more like Jesus. Here's an illustration that an English Puritan writer once said, Thomas Manton, he had, he had a very helpful analogy, and I think this is helpful. He says, a child in the womb is nourished by the mother. So think about that. Lives through the life of the mother and feeds through the food of the mother. But once a child is born, he lives a separate life of his own, although he still remains under the mother's care and protection. It is the same with us after we have received grace, the gospel, right? We have power to do what is necessary for the preservation of spiritual life. So then, let us not neglect the means of grace. You must not take your ease and think that God must do everything. He does do everything, but in, but in us and through us. Therefore, we remain in God's love by building ourselves up in the gospel and praying in the Holy Spirit with our hope upon Jesus' return. But yet there is one more thing that just makes all these things just pop in our text. And, it's, and, and I'm not sure if you picked up on it, but look closely at verses 20 to 21. When you look there, we actually see one of the few examples in the New Testament of what some people call a Trinitarian formula. In other words, it's in these passages that actually teach about the Trinity. Let me read these passages one more time and just emphasize each person. Going back through verses 20 to 21, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. See the Spirit, see God the Son, and God, which would have been referring to God the Father. We see all three persons here. And we see what this passage teaches is that our God, who is one, he's also triune. And that means he is not only three in persons, but he is one God, right? And, I, and by me saying that, you're like, man, that's mysterious. That's, that's too big for me to grasp, and indeed so. If our God was able to be put into a, into a small box, and he's not a God worth worshiping. But yet, this is not a contradiction, and yet, this is how the Bible reveals our God to be. That he is three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But yet, they all subsist in this one divine nature. He is one God. One in essence, three in person. And I bring that up because when we talk about keeping ourselves in God's love, we got to understand something about, well, what does it mean for God to be love in himself, right? As 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And since God is love, so is the Father and the Son and the Spirit because all three together are one God. Therefore, God is love. And we see it in this way, right? You have the Father, unbegotten, not made, right, has always loved his eternally begotten son, Jesus. There was never a time when the father never had the son. And there was never a time when the son never had the father. They always loved each other in this eternal, perfect, harmonious relationship with one another forever and all time. And furthermore, you have the Holy Spirit as well, coming from both the father and the son, right? One, um, one theologian in church history said, the spirit's like the bond of love between the two, right? What does that mean? means that the Spirit doesn't just come from the Father. The Spirit doesn't come just from the Son. He comes from both. Therefore, the Spirit belongs to both the Father and the Son and is therefore loved by both the Father and the Son. And we see this relationship, although it's huge and and, 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 and huge in magnitude, God is love. And since our God is a trinity, that means the gospel is Trinitarian as well. Because think about that. God elected the people he would save in eternity past. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for his people's sin. And the spirit sent by both the father and the son causes his people to be born again by believing in the gospel. That's who our God is, loved ones. He is like, unlike any other because he is the uncomparable one. He is the greatest being imaginable for he alone has life in himself. No other God com- 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 competes with this. Allah, he has no one else to love but the creation that he depends upon, right? No, our triune God, he is love. And not only that, but we are invited into this Trinitarian life to not only love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also our neighbors as ourselves. And so loved ones, keep yourself in our triune God's love by building yourselves up together in the gospel, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, and keeping your eyes at the end goal, Jesus' return. And although God is the one who ultimately keeps us until the very end, we're still responsible for remaining in that love too. But yet, there is one final command that Jude briefly gives to us um, as he finishes this section of his letter before he gets into his doxology, which we'll save for last next time. This leads us to the third and the final exhortation tonight. And it's this. Rescue those who are perishing. Rescue those who are perishing. So look at the last two verses of our passage this evening, loved ones. This is what Jude says in verses 22 to 23. He writes, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
Jude calls the churches to Israel, right, to remember what God has said about the false teachers, and he has called them to keep themselves in his love. Now, here, lastly, in his letter, he's going to give a threefold series of commands of how to finally respond to these false teachers. And it's necessary that Jude does this to encourage his readers that they keep himself in God's love within the reality that they're being kept by God. Why? Because these false teachers were not only causing division, but leading even people astray from the true gospel with their destructive teaching and lifestyle. As a result, he's telling these churches to embark on really a rescue mission, a, a rescue mission to save those who are perishing. But we've got to be clear. He's not talking about the false teachers because he has made very clear throughout his letter that they are going to experience eternal judgment by God when Christ returns. And so if it's not the false teachers, who does he have in mind? It can only be those whom they influence, people in the churches that Jude was writing to. And it's interesting because Jude's like, instead of abandoning them, right, that they're not a lost cause, no, he's saying, church, go and rescue them and not the strikers, loved ones. Because out of all the things that Jude could have instructed the churches about these false teachers, he tells them to keep themselves in God's love and rescue those who have been influenced by them, who have been deceived, right, deceived, rescue those who are perishing. And the text is going to make this clear, and it's going to actually show that this is a right response, a biblical response of how we have to handle the situation. Where God showed mercy to us, right, first to us as believers through the gospel, we have to do the same for others as well, loved ones. In the same way that God has loved us, we are called to love others in the same way. And so to better understand Jude's point, look again at verses 22 to 23. He says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Although it's possible that maybe Jude is talking about three different groups of people, he may as well be just giving three different ways of how to rescue people in light of the situation at these churches. Either way, these three sentences, these three clauses, they're going to tell us, they're going to show us three different responses to when it comes to rescue, rescuing these perishing people. First, Jude says to have mercy on those who doubt. But what does he mean by doubt? Well, the doubters that Jude has in mind are believers who may have been perishing in doubt whether or not these false teachers are right or if Jude is right, if the apostles are right. Yet, the right response that Jude is saying here is to be quick, not to show judgment, but to show mercy to them. And this is really what's going to be his point in verses 22 to 23. Because the goal of rescuing people from the danger of them perishing in their sins is really to restore them from it, right? To bring them back from it. And despite some, you know, these doubters being unsure, like, oh, I don't know who to listen to, who's right? It's not, they're not really at that level of sinful rebellion yet. At least not yet, right? And this, this will become clear in a little bit. But regardless, it's the church's duty to go out to these people who are struggling, to these doubters, right? To go out to them and to remind them what has God has said in his word. Instead of believing the lies of the false teachers, doubters, they got to be grounded in the promises of God's word. And it takes great patience and love and it's the, but it's the only way that they can stop doubting and remember what God has said in his word. This leads to a second possible response where Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So we see the first scenario, we got these doubters. This next situation is a little bit more serious. It's these people who are in the fire in some way. Maybe they started embracing the false teacher's sinful teaching and lifestyle. That's why he says they're in the fire, because they are on the verge of perishing alongside these false teachers in the eternal fire. 
In response, he gives them more pervasive measures of how to, how to go about the situation. And we see that with save others by snatching them out of the fire. And what's interesting is that this word for snatching in the Greek, it captures really the idea of grabbing someone and taking them out of the fire, right? It's not just like, it's not just taking out your hand, like, all right, come on, reach out. And it's dependent upon them to grab on, right? No, you take the initiative and you grab them out of the fire. That's what Judah's getting at here. And think about that. If the initiative is on us as a church, not on this person, if it's on the church to rescue them, almost sounds very similar, right, to how we when we do have to go through this, we have to go through church discipline. Because the whole point of that passage, right, about excommunication, the whole point of that is to restore believers who have fallen astray, right, for whatever reason, right, for whatever sin. And so I think it will be worthwhile then just to, to reread that passage very briefly. This is what Jesus says. Our Lord says in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, this is the basic guidelines for, the, for regarding church discipline. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, right? You're good. But if that doesn't work, Jesus continues. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But yet, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the whole church. And if he refuses to listen to the whole church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, an unbeliever, this is the process that scripture teaches us, right? That our Lord gives us, and it's clear. And the goal is not just to be quick to judge and get them out of here, right? No, the goal is to restore them, to restore those who are in sin, and not to be quick to judge. But yet, what happens when restoration does not happen? What happens if people don't repent? This leads us to that final response that Jude says at the end of verse 23. And this is what he says. He says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We now arrive at the situation, a situation that is a little more unsettling. Where Jude says in his first response, just show mercy, he now says, show mercy, but with fear. What's, why, why, why does he do that? What kind of fear does Jude have in mind here? Well, we find clarity with what he says right afterward, right? Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And this, 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 this word picture that Jude is trying to get at is that in, in the first century, you have what was called a garment. Um, it was just a piece of clothing that, you know, people in the first century wore closest to their body. Think of it as like our t-shirts today, right? And if you know anything about, you know, garments or t-shirts, they get very dirty, right? Very easily. But yet Jude's point is not to hate dirty clothes. Instead, where shirts are prone to get dirty, the shirts, are, the shirts of our flesh are prone to get dirty from sin. As a result, we should hate sin so much that we want nothing to do with it in any way, to get dirty by the effects of sin in any way. And so what Judah's doing here then, he's really giving a balanced approach when it comes to rescuing believers from sin. We need to have mercy for others, but yet with a fearful hatred of sin. Because where mercy without fear, if it's just mercy, that can lead to unwarranted sympathy, really alleviating the responsibility of that person's sin and really going against what our Lord says in Matthew 18. But yet, if we have fear without mercy, then it can just lead to personal judgment, personal grudges. No, we need a balance. Our goal is to save fellow brothers and sisters who are perishing in sin, right? Whether it be through false teaching or through any sin struggle that they're dealing with, but yet we need to take the initiative of seeking these lost sheep who have wandered away. We meet them one by one, and we take others, even if 
even if it takes the whole church if necessary, you know, for, to help them to repent, but yet the goal is always to restore them back into God's fold. Yet there will be times when, yes, people will refuse to repent. And it's at that moment we got to excommunicate them. And although it can be a hard decision, it's the biblical one. And not only does it hold the personal person accountable for their sin, but it also maintains the purity and the witness of God's church to the world, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5. And to some extent, that's how we fight for the gospel, by maintaining its purity within the household of God itself. And so when it comes to rescuing those who are perishing in sin of any kind, we must operate from a merciful fear with the goal of restoration. So we've seen just how Jude commands his readers, right, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Does throw through three exhortations. First, he calls them to remember what God has said, because it's not only vital for them to live, it's not only vital for them in light of false teachers to recall what God has said, but it's essential for us every day to grow in our love and our knowledge of God. Only when, only then will we, will we be equipped for every good work set up before us. But that's the first one. The second one, Jude says, we've got to remain in God's love. And that happens when we immerse ourselves in God's word, in the Bible personally and corporately in the church. We have a spirit-filled prayer life and also looking towards to the return of our Lord Jesus. And lastly, because God first loved us, we are to do the same by having a merciful fear by calling others to a restoration before God. As a result, it's these exhortations that Jude gives the churches of Israel to keep. Because if they do they would contend for the gospel by not only maintaining its message, but living a life according to it. So loved ones, for us this evening, contend for the faith by remembering God's word. Remain in his love and rescue one another from sin. Not only does this point to the gospel we preach, but it also proves to the world that we have been transformed by it as well. Such beliefs will will put us against the world at times, right? Like many faithful brothers and sisters before us, even ultimately did so for our Lord and Savior Jesus. But remember what he says. We don't need to fear, for he has overcome the world. And although we are, we are called to keep ourselves in God's love, as we will see next time in the final section of Jude's letter, it's that it is he, our triune God, that ultimately keeps us. Let's go before our Lord in prayer, church. Lord God, just we thank you for this evening just to be able to look in your word through the small letter of Jude. We just pray 